Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. Today, creeps, we take a trip to Amish country, to a community known as Apple Creek, Ohio. Now, I don't know much about the Amish, but I do know about Eli Stutzman Jr., who grew up in Apple Creek and was the son of a high-ranking bishop in the Amish community. Eli Stutzman Jr. was rebellious. He'd been rebellious his whole life, bucking the advice, guidance, and authoritarian rules of his community as well as his father, Eli Sr., Not only had Eli Jr. rebelled against his father, but he rebelled against the constraining rules of the Amish community as well. Eli was born on September 20th, 1950, but it wasn't until his pregnant wife Ida died in a barn fire in 1977 that Eli was brought to the attention of police. And that's because the circumstances of the fire which killed his pregnant wife were questionable to say the least, with Eli largely refusing to comment or cooperate with investigators in any meaningful fashion. He continually gave them inconsistent and often contradicting stories about what exactly led to the events and circumstances that killed his pregnant wife. Eli claimed that the roof had simply been struck by lightning, thereby igniting the roof and setting the building ablaze. When Ida Stutzman, Eli's wife, saw the barn on fire being five months pregnant, she allegedly ran out into the burning barn inferno to try and rescue the expensive milking equipment. But tragically, she never made it out. But members of the community expressed to authorities when the bishops weren't looking that they believed Eli had set the fire and put his wife inside with no way of getting out. And why? Well, because he didn't want to have another child. For those of you creeps out there who don't know what an Amish bishop is, the bishop is considered the leader and head of the Amish church ministry. Some of their responsibilities include sermon creation, reading scripture, counseling residents in the community, baptizing, and even handing out disciplinary actions to those who stray from the unwritten rules of the church known as the Ordnung. To contextualize that further, They are essentially the board of directors for the community. After Ida's death, Eli Stutzman Jr. seemed to stray even further from the community and their teachings, as well as the wishes of his father. Some equated those changes to an emotional breakdown over the death of his pregnant wife, while others considered it the natural progression, as they suspected Eli had murdered Ida by setting the barn fire. And that was, in and of itself, his first act of shedding away his Amish life. First, Eli shaved his beard. Then he wired his house for electricity, and eventually stopped farming altogether. Those actions, in and of themselves, broke more than a handful of rules outlined in the Amish ministry, as well as the Ordnung. From there, Eli began to travel outside of Apple Creek, Ohio. 
According to Eli, he was looking for work outside of the community. While he was traveling for work, Eli Stutzman would leave his 10-month-old son with relatives or neighbors. But he wouldn't leave him for a day, or even a week. Danny Stutzman, Eli's son, would be left with relatives for months at a time, as his father was outside of the community, far away from the authoritarian eyes of the bishops, doing only God knows what. In the eight years following the death of Ida Stutzman, the account of Eli and where Eli was are largely unreliable hearsay or altogether mundane in nature. But that would change in 1985. On May 12, 1985, the body of a man named Glenn Pritchett was discovered face down in a ditch along a lonely road in Texas. The cause of death? Multiple gunshot wounds to the head. When investigators arrived at the scene where the body had been found, it was obvious and apparent that what had taken place wasn't an accident, nor was it self-inflicted. The multiple gunshot wounds were both an execution, as well as an emotional overkill. Glenn Pritchett had undeniably been murdered. Police got to work contacting anyone who might have seen or been aware of Glenn's last known whereabouts, which led them to Glenn Pritchett's roommate, who had vanished sometime after Glenn had gone missing and been found murdered in a ditch. That roommate was none other than Eli Stutzman, and Eli was nowhere to be found. Eli had in fact left Texas, but once again before disappearing altogether, Eli had made arrangements with friends in Wyoming for them to watch his son, Danny. According to those friends, Eli Stutzman claimed that he needed to leave Danny with them while he went back to Texas to clear his name in the Pritchett murder. As he was well aware by the time he arrived in Wyoming that police were seeking him out for questioning in regards to the murder of Glenn. It wasn't until December 14th, over six months later, that Eli returned to Wyoming to pick up his son, who he habitually neglected and left behind. When asked where they were headed off to next, Eli replied that himself, along with his son Danny, were headed back to Apple Creek, Ohio, to spend Christmas with his family. But when Eli arrived in Apple Creek at the front step of his family's modest home, Danny wasn't with him. When pressed by family members, Eli told them that Danny had begged to stay back in Wyoming so he could go skiing over the Christmas holidays. So where exactly was Danny? On December 24, 1985, in the small Nebraskan town of Chester, in a cornfield, frozen and wearing blue pajamas, was the body of a dead child. The child had no name. There was nothing that could have identified the boy present in the cornfield when he was found. The community took it upon themselves to call him Matthew and buried him under that name. But for two years, when the boy came up in conversation, when he was whispered about over campfires or spoken about at lunch, the community simply called him the little blue boy. And for two years, that mystery remained unsolved. That is, until Reader's Digest reported on the story in 1987 and lit the curiosity of the entire country thereafter. It was during the two years following the discovery of the little blue boy that Eli had taken it upon himself to send a letter home to his family in Apple Creek, Ohio, to tell them that Danny had sadly passed away, but was buried in Wyoming. While to his friends in Wyoming, who had watched Danny for over six months, 
Eli told them that Danny was happy and healthy attending school in Ohio. But when that Reader's Digest article was published, one of Eli's Amish relatives back in Ohio instantly thought of Danny. Not only had the Amish relative read the article and thought of Danny, but so too did the woman who had cared for Danny back in Wyoming. She contacted police and provided a picture and report card that had Danny's palm print on it. And with that, after two long years, Chester, Nebraska finally found out who their little boy Blue was. Using the palm print, police were able to identify the frozen child found in the cornfield, wearing only his pajamas. It immediately became clear to investigators that whether or not Eli Stutzman had killed his son, that on some level, there had been wrongdoing. He'd maintained a deception for over two years as to the whereabouts of his son. Clearly, he knew that his son was neither buried in Wyoming, nor was he in school in Ohio. The only problem was that authorities couldn't find Eli Stutzman, as he was, in fact, nowhere to be found in Nebraska. Thankfully, authorities eventually found Eli in Texas, where he was arrested and could finally be charged with felony child abuse. Tragically, though, creeps, the coroner had been unable to determine how nine-year-old Danny had passed away, and without cause of death, there wasn't enough evidence to implicate Danny's father, Eli, in the murder of his child. And without that evidence, they were unable to contradict Eli's claim that Danny had simply passed away from a severe throat infection while the pair were traveling to his family's home in Ohio. Eli Stutzman was instead convicted of concealing a death and abandoning the body of his nine-year-old son, and as such only served 18 months for those crimes. Despite getting off lightly for the crimes he committed against his son, there was also the fact that Eli Stutzman was finally in the hands of authorities which meant the matter of Glenn Pritchett's murder could finally be addressed. Now, I don't want to go into the trial, but I would like to skip to 1989, where, at the end of that trial, Eli Stutzman was convicted and sentenced to 40 years in prison for the murder of Glenn Pritchett. Sadly, though, Eli only served 16 years of that 40-year sentence before he was released. Eli's sentence ended in 2005, after what seems like an inappropriately short period of penance for the wayward son of the Apple Creek Amish community. He had always been known as a moody liar within Apple Creek before his wife had passed away. Many in the community thought him responsible. After that, he had apparently had a mental breakdown before breaking away from the Amish community entirely. He'd murdered his roommate and been convicted. He'd habitually neglected his son and abandoned Danny's body before lying about his death. So was that all he did? What if it wasn't? Eli Stutzman was never convicted of anything else, but authorities aren't so sure that Eli Stutzman Jr. didn't have a longer list of victims. In 1985, around the time Eli murdered Glenn Pritchett, two more men linked to Eli went missing. David Tyler and Dennis Sleater, both friends of Eli's, were murdered one month apart from each other in Durango, Colorado. Dennis was shot at his place of work, a convenience store, while Tyler was killed and left in the bed of his truck outside his place of work, an auto body business. Based on circumstantial evidence, police were confident that Eli Stutzman was their prime suspect in both homicide cases. But with no physical proof, 
investigators were unable to bring charges against him. But why had Eli killed in the first place, and were the victims related at all? Well, it's largely speculative, but by those who knew Eli Stutzman personally, it's believed that he killed both his pregnant wife as well as his son because, well, they weren't what he wanted. He'd been brought up in the Amish community of Apple Creek, but as time went on, his need to break free of that community grew and grew until it was overwhelming. Eli simply didn't want to be a family man, nor did he truly ever want to be a father and take care of his child, Danny. The men he killed, if we include both Glenn, whose murder he was convicted of, as well as the two men in Colorado, were suspected of being Eli's lovers. Although why he killed them has never been definitively known or confessed. Perhaps he was simply done with them, in the same way he was done with being a member of the Amish community in Apple Creek. We'll never get a chance to ask Eli once and for all why he did any of it, nor will he ever have the chance to confess. In 2007, in Fort Worth, Texas, Eli claimed his last victim. After several days of not having seen him, Eli's neighbors called police. When authorities arrived, they found Eli dead. When an autopsy was performed, they found that Eli Stutzman was HIV positive and had passed away with high levels of cocaine present in his system. He died of a self-inflicted wound to his left forearm, from which he bled out. And with him went our chance of ever knowing 100% why he did what he did. So creeps, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every five-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors.